America's National Parks podcast is sponsored by L.L. Bean. This year, L.L. Bean is joining up with the National Park Foundation, the official nonprofit partner of the National Park Service, to help you find your happy place in an amazing system of more than 400 national parks, including historic and cultural sites, monuments, preserves, lakeshores, and seashores that dot the American landscape, many of which you'll find just a short trip from home. L.L. Bean is proud to be an official partner of the National Park Foundation. Discover your perfect day in a park at findyourpark.com. Twenty-four years ago, a Ryder truck packed with nearly 5,000 pounds of explosives was parked in front of Oklahoma City's Alfred P. Mura Federal Building by Timothy McVeigh, a Gulf War veteran who two years prior had driven to Waco, Texas during the siege of the compound belonging to the Branch Davidians to show his support. At the scene, he distributed pro-gun rights literature and bumper stickers bearing slogans such as, when guns are outlawed, I will become an outlaw. On April 19, 1995, he delivered a bomb that killed 168 people, among them 19 children, most of whom who were in the building's daycare center. The youngest victim was four months old. In a matter of seconds, the blast destroyed most of the nine-story concrete and granite building, and the surrounding area looked like a war zone. Dozens of cars were incinerated, and more than 300 nearby buildings were damaged or destroyed. The Oklahoma City bombing remains the seminal event in Oklahoma City history, and the deadliest act of terrorism on U.S. soil after 9-11. But on the grounds today, 24 years later, sits a memorial that brings Oklahomans together to remember the victims and the heroes on that fateful day. I'm Jason Epperson, and on today's episode of America's National Parks, the Oklahoma City National Memorial, and the investigation that remains one of the largest and most complex cases the FBI has ever undertaken. Florence Rogers, head of the Federal Employee Credit Union, was in her office on the third floor of the Muir building that morning. Seated around her desk were eight credit union employees, some of whom Rogers had known and worked with for decades. Although they were having a business meeting, spring was in the air, and there was talk of the women's colorful seasonal dresses. We didn't open till nine o'clock, and we were open until five o'clock every day. <clears throat> but uh, uh, the credit union was some a place where everybody could go in there. So, uh, or the snack bar, credit union and the snack bar. So we were constantly uh, inundated with people just come in to visit or or uh, draw a little money for their lunch or, or uh, apply for a loan. So we were, everybody, everybody visited the credit union. So I got there as early as I could that morning and uh, I was I'd had all my cruise pictures from my vacation the week before. I had them all put in there, and I was going to share all those with with these gals when we met. 
that morning. So we didn't get started on this meeting until about 8.20 that morning. And I would <clears throat> turn around and look at my computer screen at the next item that we were to discuss. And uh, I'd rear back in my chair and, and let them chat about well, who's going to copy this, who's going to do this, get this ready for the banking department so they could hurry with their audit. I just turned around in my chair and kind of reared back and uh, was getting ready to discuss the next item <clears throat> that I'd mentioned when the bomb went off. And uh, it was, it, it had to be longer, but it was just like seconds. And they all, all the girls that was in the office with me had disappeared. And I thought they had ran out and left me alone. And I started hollering, where are you guys? Where are you guys? And then I realization set in somewhat, and I realized that I don't know where they are. They, they're gone. And uh, eventually I found out that there was, when the bomb went up and everything started coming down, that the seven floors up above us uh, had took them down into what was eventually known as the pit. There was just an eerie silence that fell over that whole scene uh, when the you know the papers were still fluttering and and uh, but when the glass and stuff stopped, you know, and there there was glass found on buildings, you know, blocks away and all everywhere. Um, but this eerie silence was was something. And uh, I uh, I had been thrown on the floor and packed in to my spot. Uh, with stuff packed around me, then I found out later that there was only like 18 inches of the exterior wall that did not break away, which kind of helped me there. But my desk was sitting just at an angle, right ready to topple over into this hole that the bomb had made where all my employees had landed. My first thoughts uh, actually was it probably had to be a gas explosion of some kind. And then later on, they started saying bomb, you know, and that was pretty shocking. But uh, my first, uh, I've been asked this uh, by quite a few people, well, what was your first thought when you saw all this stuff going up in the, the whole building blowing up before you? And uh, my answer to that was, I always hated movies where the where they blow up perfectly good buildings and bridges and there's so much of that now in the movies but and I don't like that never did and my first thought literally was oh my gosh this is like a bad movie I've got to get up and get out of here Special Agent Barry Black was at the Tinker Air Force Base that morning tracking a fugitive in a stock manipulation case he'd been working on for 4 years Black was trained as an accountant, but since joining the Bureau seven years earlier, had become a sniper on the SWAT team and had deployed to the Waco standoff in 1993, the event that had galvanized Timothy McVeigh's hatred of the federal government. Black was also the newest bomb tech in the Oklahoma City Division. 
He and his partner had received a tip that their white collar fugitive was on the military base and as they waited in their car for him, the bomb went off. They were seven linear miles from the Mira building. I remember it was very loud and you immediately snapped your head toward downtown, he said. It was loud enough where you could see the people outside hunker down because of the noise. It was later determined that the blast registered 3.2 on the Richter scale. Look at this, you show up on the scene like that and clearly it's, it's huge. Um, I was in Waco during the first Trade Center bombing. Uh, you know, so, and as a bomb technician, you kind of keep track of those sorts of things. So this was clearly from inception, uh, a unique and major event. Um, you know, how it tied into uh, McVeigh's perception of Waco and that, you know, linking those two things together was unusual, which of course we learned later on. But, uh, you know, the scope of it from the time I drove up was, was obvious. I was there uh, around 9.30, uh, It's very early on. As I said, the fires were still burning. And uh, uh, I remember part of that site assessment was just to get a sense of, of what had gone on. And uh, you could still see people trapped in the upper floors of the building. And uh, of course, the firefighters were putting the fires out and uh, paramedics and ambulance. There, there are a lot of lot of wounded people, walking wounded, and uh, you know it, it's emotional. Uh, but there's a lot to do, and it's it's not that you're not you know empathetic or sympathetic, but you have to sort of push through that to get to the job at hand. You know, there's a just like you know I, I'm can't help somebody as a paramedic could or, you know, the, the firefighting apparatus. So everybody's got a specialty and you just have to rely on those other first responders that they're going to take care of their part and they'll presume that I'm going to do my part. We were on site a lot and uh, I remember the Red Cross would bring out something hot to eat uh, on occasion because it really was difficult to leave. But, uh, you know, it was almost like the world was going on outside that, that bubble um, but my wife has told me uh, that, that friends and people I haven't heard from in a very long time would call the house just to see how she was doing, see how I was doing. Uh, there would be a call on the on the media for you know boots or gloves, and they would show up by the truckload. Um, there was a building not far from the the Murrah building that was full of supplies and. Over the years, I've talked to some of the urban rescue folks that came in from other states, and they remember today, you know, 20 years later, that they couldn't buy a cup of coffee. They'd go into a restaurant to eat before trying to sleep for a little bit, and they'd go to pay, and they were told, you know, somebody's already paid for your meal or it's on the house. And uh, it's become now known as the Oklahoma Standard, that uh, the way the community just turned out completely, was it was it was moving. Bob Ricks was the special agent in charge of the FBI's Oklahoma City Division in 1995. On the morning of April 19th, he and many of his law enforcement colleagues were signed up for the charity golf event about 40 miles east of downtown, sponsored by the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. His counterparts from the Secret Service and the U.S. Marshals Service were there as well. We were just getting ready to tee off and all of a sudden everyone's phone started going off. I got a call from my secretary saying that there had been some type of bombing down at the Mira Federal Building, 
The first thing that we were doing was literally setting up another FBI field office. Uh, from the basic infrastructure of getting telephones together, of, uh, of trying to get together a, uh, a records management system, of uh, coordinating with the fire department uh, to get our evidence response teams on the ground to, to seal off the inner perimeter, to have an outer perimeter, to have control of the press as to how we were going to handle messaging. Uh, and so you're really starting almost from the ground up building uh, this infrastructure that was necessary to respond. At the same time, integrating all these various agencies from local police, local fire, uh, local sheriffs, uh, uh, federal agencies all into this process and, and setting up a structure that, that hopefully would last. When I got through with the meeting with the chief of police and the chief of the fire department that uh, they said, you know, it's clear it's a terrorist event and it's the FBI has lead responsibility. We will be here and give you whatever support you need and basically good luck. And then we all went back to doing what we were doing. And I kind of stood there in front of that building by myself there for a while, and, and all I could think was, you know, Lord, this is overwhelming. And, you know, where do you start? And basically said a prayer that, uh, you know, that obviously I can't make it right, but hopefully we can find justice in this process. Rick's had a long career with the Bureau and had previously helped establish a joint terrorism task force in New Jersey. He understood bombing incidents, in his experience, most individuals who carried out such attacks were trying to make a statement. Evidence quickly led to Timothy McVeigh. Investigators determined the explosion was caused by a truck bomb and collected vehicle parts with telltale bomb damage. A VIN number led to a Ryder rental facility in Junction City, Kansas. On April 20th, the FBI released a sketch of the man who rented the truck. The owner of the Dreamland Motel in Junction City recognized him as a guest registered as Timothy McVeigh. When the bomb went off, Special Agent Jim Norman was at his desk in the FBI's Oklahoma City field office, located about five miles northwest of the Muir building. It shook everything in the office, Norman recalled. Files fell off people's desks where they were piled up. As one of the Bureau's senior bomb technicians, Norman rushed into his supervisor's office. We looked toward downtown Oklahoma City, and you could see a tan cloud of debris rising from that area. I think a bomb detonated downtown, I told my supervisor. We need to go down there. In his car on the way to the scene, a local radio station was reporting that the blast might have been caused by a natural gas explosion, but in his gut, Norman knew it was a bomb from the sound he had heard. Less than 15 minutes after the blast, he parked two blocks away from the Miro building, it was as close as he could get because of all the debris. Found out that an Oklahoma Highway Patrol trooper uh, had made an inquiry on Tim McVeigh within about 90 minutes of the bombing. And so we had one of the people working on our task force, an ATF agent named Mark Mahalik, contact the Highway Patrol and identify the person whose badge number was in that inquiry. Because when you make an inquiry, you have to list an identifier for yourself as a law enforcement official. And so he found out that that badge number belonged to a trooper named Charlie Hanger. And so once we had Hanger's name, 
we had someone contact him and they found out that Hanger had been heading south toward Oklahoma City based on a highway patrol dispatcher call for all available troopers to head to Oklahoma City to assist, he had gotten a discontinue. He was about 62 miles north of Oklahoma City, and he turned around in the median on Interstate 35. And as he's starting to head back north, he's passed by this yellow mercury marquee that's missing its rear license plate. And so he pulls that car over, and the driver gets out of the car, and Hanger has to order him to stay by the door of his car. And so Hanger gets out, tells the guy to back up toward him, and as McVeigh is backing toward him, he notices McVeigh has a bulge under his left jacket. And he reaches out, he grabs it. McVeigh said it's a gun, and it's loaded, and Hanger has his gun next to McVeigh's head and says, so's mine. And he relieved McVeigh of his gun, which was loaded with those rounds that can shoot through an armor vest. And so once he had that gun and a K-bar knife that McVeigh had hidden on his person, he took McVeigh into custody and took him to the Noble County Jail in Perry, Oklahoma. And so our investigator asked Hanger what happened to him. And he said, I don't know. He may still be in custody. He may not. And so one of our investigators contacted Sheriff Jerry Cook and talked to him. And he said, well, McVeigh's in custody, but he's going to be released within probably an hour. And so we put a federal hold on him. And at that point, myself and several other agents got into a helicopter and flew up to Perry. And when we got up there, myself and another agent interviewed the different people that had been in McVeigh's cell. We were asking them questions, you know, has McVeigh said anything? Did he uh, comment about the bombing at all, anything of that nature? And they said, no, he was just attentive to the radio that was giving updates on what was going on with the bombing investigation. And then finally, McVeigh was brought in to an office that Sheriff Cook gave us. And I asked McVeigh, I said, do you know why we're here? And he said that thing in Oklahoma City, I guess. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said that bombing, I want an attorney. But one of the really beneficial things of Trooper Hanger taking him into custody was the fact that when they lodged him in the Noble County Jail, they collected all his clothing and put it in paper bags. Well, when we sent that clothing back to the FBI laboratory and they did a chemical analysis test on the clothing, they determined that he was basically the explosive equivalent of a powdered sugar donut. He had P-E-T-N all over his clothing. McVeigh used a Michigan address when he checked into the Dreamland Motel. He used the same address which belonged to a brother of Terry Nichols when he was arrested shortly after the bombing. Terry Nichols was one of McVeigh's army buddies, also known for his anti-government sentiments, and the investigation showed that Nichols helped McVeigh buy and steal the material for the bomb and helped mix the ingredients. Investigators discovered plenty of other evidence. McVeigh's fingerprints were also found on a receipt at Nichols' home for 2,000 pounds of fertilizer used to make the bomb. A 
other evidence linked McVeigh and Nichols to each other and to different elements of the crime. The FBI initially had no idea how many people were involved. In 32 months, the Bureau logged more than 1 million hours of investigative work through the task force. During that time, investigators conducted more than 28,000 interviews, followed more than 43,000 investigative leads, collected nearly three and a half tons of evidence, searched 1 billion records and 26 databases, and reviewed more than 13.2 million hotel registration records, 3.1 million rider truck rental records, and 682,000 airline reservations. In August 1995, McVeigh and Nichols were charged with the same 11 federal crimes. People are used to these one-hour television shows where they solve complex crimes. Uh, this was just not the case. Uh, this involved a million, 8,000 man-hours. I think it was uh, 1,400 people working about 840 days uh, to come up with the, the volume of information that, that went into the case. Uh, it, it, was a, it was a very thorough and, and uh, protracted investigation. I made three trips to Denver during the trial. Uh, and all that's you know, it's hard on your family, it's hard on the victims, it's, it's hard on everybody. I'm proud that, that things worked as, as they should. You know, the system was followed. Uh, everybody got a, a fair trial and uh, the jury did their job, the judge did his job, so things worked as they should. It became, it is still the defining moment in Oklahoma City. When you try to talk about when something happened, let's see, that was before the bombing, that was after the bombing. It's, it's a measure of time like BC and AD. And, you know, throughout the country, news stories went in different directions and they didn't keep having that. But in Oklahoma City, they did. I'm asked that a lot. I do work. Are you, were you angry? Did you get mad? And my answer has always been, I did not let myself get angry because who, they would have only hurt Florence if I got angry. It, it caused a lot of changes in my life. Um, I retired early, uh, earlier than I anticipated. Uh, it uh, it's never gone away. Those those 18 that I lost had worked for me 128 years total tenure, and so they were like my daughters. Some of them, you know, and had been they had some of them had worked for me decades, and uh, uh, it hurts to see their families and to know that. You know, here I am having great-grandbabies, and uh, those families won't ever have that opportunity. Uh, so it did change my life a, a lot. I just say that the man upstairs wasn't through with me yet. Don't ever miss an opportunity to tell those you love, you love them because you don't ever know when you might not come home from that ordinary day. Today on the site of what was once the Muir Building, there is a memorial honoring the significance of that tragic day. The memorial was formally dedicated on April 19, 2000, the fifth anniversary of the bombing, and is cared for by the National Park Service. 
It features two large bronze walls on either end called the Gates of Time. One is marked 9.01 a.m., the minute before the bombing, and the other is marked 9.03, the minute after. Between them sits a reflecting pool and 168 empty chairs handcrafted from glass, bronze, and stone to represent those who lost their lives. Each has a name etched in the glass base. Nineteen of the chairs are child-sized. The memorial is free to enter, but on site is a separate nonprofit museum. Carrie Watkins is the executive director. The memorial is really built to remember those who were killed, those who survived, and those changed forever. Um, while we tell the stories of perpetrators, it really is about remembrance and lessons learned and how we call that information together so that we hopefully can prevent or teach against future acts. And we think with that remembering, you're more likely to repeat the same stupidity. I mean, the same negligence of just thinking that, you know, by doing these things, you can change lives. And uh, we want to encourage people of all ages that to work together within what's within the law when they want to change something to work within government and the law that's set forth. And we've seen that done since, um, and that's, that's a big part of our mission. And so we want as kids come through to understand the role the FBI had in this story and how a, you know, ordinary Highway Patrolman doing his job did it really well and how this one circumstance had to force government agencies of all levels to work together, city, state, federal, and within the federal government in our agency work. And that's something that I think is a lesson, a life lesson that we try to teach and, and, and show very clearly for people. A building was attacked, a government building was attacked in a way to try to defeat the government. And what happened was a unity, you know, really like none we've seen. And um, people came together and worked together and said the government will survive. And then two days of federal credit union opened and the agencies reopened and people worked together. And so that's a part of that story we want to retell is that, you know, even when people try to bring down the very government in which we believe in, um, we will survive, and it'll be that same government that will defend the criminals and prosecute the criminals at the same time. This episode of America's National Parks was hosted by me, Jason Epperson, and compiled from the FBI's website detailing their famous cases. It's an excellent resource, which we'll link to in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, we love a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search National Park Podcast. You can also join our America's National Parks Facebook group. We'll link to all of our social media, as well as National Park Service resources in the show notes at nationalparkpodcast.com. If you're interested in RV travel, give us a listen over at the RV Miles Podcast. You can also follow Abigail and I as we travel the country in our converted school bus with our three boys at OurWanderingFamily.com This land is your land This land is my land From California To the New York Island From the Redwood Forest To the Gulf Stream waters This land 
Today's show was sponsored by L.L. Bean. Follow the hashtag BeAnOutsider and visit LLBean.com to find great gear for exploring the national parks. <laughs>